And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Sydney Ladenstone Stern to the program today. She has written and edited for newspapers and magazines, including Fortune. She has also written three books of nonfiction Toyland, The High Stakes Game of the Toy Industry, Gloria Steinem, Her Passions, Politics, and Mystique, and most recently, The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics. Sydney joined us from Manhattan for this interview. Now, unless you're a film buff or a person of a certain age, the name Mankiewicz might sound familiar, but you may not be able to quite put your finger on it. Sydney, could you just give us kind of the big strokes of Herman and Joseph influence in Hollywood? Okay, well, Herman who, and Joseph Mankiewicz were brothers. Herman's dates are 1897 to 1953, and his much younger brother, who he was 11 and a half years younger, was eight, 1909 to 1993. And Herman and Joe went out to Hollywood. They were New Yorkers. They were writers. They went out to Hollywood in the 1920s, and Herman died there. Herman spent his whole career from his not-quite-30s till he died in his 50s. And Joe worked there from 1929 till 1951 when he left. And they were screenwriters. Joe later became a producer and then a director, and they are best known for their masterpieces. That it, it was interesting to me because two, each brother contributed a masterpiece of the Hollywood studio system era. Herman is best known for co-writing Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And Joe is best known for All About Eve. As you said, Herman, almost 12 years older than Joe. But to understand these men, of course, you have to look at their parents. How did their parents come to America from Europe? Well, they came separately. They met in New York. The father, who was Franz Mankiewicz, I can't pronounce it very well, but let's just call him Mankiewicz, came from Berlin. He was very educated. He had been educated at the University of Berlin, very cultured, and he came to New York, like so many, in 1891 to make his fortune. Hannah, Johanna Blumenau, was much less educated, and she came from a German-speaking portion of what's now Latvia called Kurland. And they met, she was a dressmaker, and he was, I don't know what he was. He was a journalist. I think he, he sold cigars for a while. He did a number of different things, rather unsuccessfully. But again, he was very cultured and sort of hooked him with the German-speaking immigrant community right away. And so they lived in New York for a few years and first had Herman in 1897 and then later a daughter, Erna, in 1901. So that's the family. And they had actually lived down in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And if it weren't for the Mankiewicz brothers slipping the name of that town into so many of their scripts, America probably wouldn't know that name. Well, it's interesting. Yes, he finally got a job, Franz, who then made himself into Frank when he moved to Wilkes-Barre in about 1904, he was asked to be the editor of a German-speaking newspaper. There were a lot of German speakers, German immigrants, et cetera, in, in Pennsylvania mining communities. And then he, so he went from being a poor immigrant, although not uneducated, to a big man in town in Wilkes-Barre. He also became the head of the Democratic Party in Lucerne County. And that's where Joe, who their mother thought was a little, it was a little accident, a little surprise, was born in 1909. 
and yes, they put Wilkes-Barre. It's sort. I I jokingly say someone could write a master's thesis on the use of Wilkes-Barre in Mankiewicz movies. It's sort of like their Peoria. They, I think they like like the sound of it, and they would put it in whenever they could. John Wayne is even a pilot from Wilkes-Barre in one of the movies. <laughs> yeah, it's just so unusual to have a town with a hyphenated name and then a difficult pronunciation for Barry and. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I was recently interviewed by someone from Wilkes-Barre or the Northeastern Pennsylvania uh, Public Radio, and I was asking several friends before I went on, how do I pronounce it? How do I pronounce it? And they, everyone authoritatively told me something different. <laughs> Wilkes-Barre, like Yogi Berra, Wilkes-Barre, which is what I eventually said, and Wilkes-Barre, which they said, Joe Biden, someone said, Joe Biden said that, and he's from Delaware, so he should know. <laughs> so the woman who inter- who my interviewer called it Wilkesbury. So now I'm calling it Wilkesbury. Now, while he changed his name to Frank, the family knew him as Pop, and he was a huge figure in the family for both good and for ill. Yes, he was a tremendous influence on both sons. He was a very harsh parent to Herman. He was very unhappy. He had an alcohol problem in his early years, and he was very harsh on Herman, very demanding. Herman was obviously very bright, so anything less than perfection was not acceptable to Pop. Where are those other eight points? Yes, right. If he came home with a 92 on a test, Pop would go, where are the other eight points? And if Herman said, I was the best one in school in the whole class, he'd say, that just shows you're with a lot of inferior minds. It should be perfect. So that was very hard to take. And as they went on in life, Pop managed, they moved back to New York where both, where Pop got a master's degree and Herman got an undergraduate degree. And then Pop went on and got a PhD from NYU and taught first high school and then also college and loved teaching and considered it the highest thing you could do in life, which was educate young people. And he wanted both sons to follow him into that line of work. And they never really got over feeling they had disappointed him. Not that necessarily that they didn't go into teaching, but they didn't do anything exalted enough for his high standards. The family was culturally Jewish, but the Mankiewiczes were not a devout family. No, German Jews and Western European Jews tended to wear their religion more lightly. They were allowed to assimilate into their community. So in the United States, they considered themselves Jewish, but it wasn't. It didn't affect their lives that much. And when they were in Wilkesbury, the father Pop did send Herman and Erna to Sunday school. And then when they, one day Herman came home and said, "We can't go to Sunday school anymore." And so their mother thought, "Uh oh, what's Herman done?" But it turned out that he'd said they had a Christmas tree. So that was the end of that. <laughs> also, when he was young, Herman had a bicycle. And it went missing, and that seems to have been great fuel for one of his later works of genius. Yes, well, I have to be careful. I don't know if a spoiler is okay in this context, but Herman lost his bike when he was out. He'd gone to the library. He was supposed to be grounded, and he took his bike, and he went to the library anyway when his mother left the house. And it was stolen while he was in the library reading, and his parents refused to replace it. And he was really heartbroken and he took he remembered that feeling and he used it when he wrote Citizen Kane and when 
should I go in? I don't know if I should spoil it for your listeners. Should we assume people have heard? Have uh, seen I think I think it's been enough time that yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You mean from a 1941 movie? It's okay to yeah. I think I think we can do that. You know, the the number one or number two movie of all time is created by critics. Okay. Okay. So when he has the scene when little Charlie Kane is being ripped away from his parents and taken to New York, he has a sled in that series in in that scene, and that sled is Rosebud, and so this famous what is the meaning of Rosebud is the loss of his sled, but it's really meant to be a symbol of the loss of his family, his love, his support, etc. So Herman felt he was translating. He remembered those feelings and put it into this masterpiece in a different way. He and his father were at Columbia at the same time. Was there a, a feeling of competition between, even though they were in, in different undergrad and graduate tracks at all? Well, Apparently, his father treated him like an intellectual rival. I mean, his father, now it was a family of five. So while Pop was going to grad school, he was also supporting a family of five. He taught at night. He wrote brochures for travel logs. He did all kinds of things. Herman Rinwell was the happy undergraduate, although he was also working at all kinds of things to try to make money. He would type people's papers. He would... he got involved in a, in a newsstand, et cetera, et cetera. So evidently they were all arguers. And, and so if Herman raised a point, the father would kind of bat him down. And it seems to be a, I don't know, nature or nurture, that, but according to Joe's children and Herman's children, their fathers were always right, and they were happy to argue either side of the argument. They just liked to argue. And that certainly did tend to turn up in Herman's life later on, especially in Hollywood. Yes, he was feisty, <laughs> to put it in a nice way. <laughs> now, Herman was pretty young when he went into Columbia. He wasn't even 16, was he? Right. They had to be, let me think when he went in. I, I think he, he went in in 1913. I always have to, because his birthday is in November, he entered when he was just about to be 16. I guess, or he, Right. He was not quite 16. And then he graduated in 1917. He went through in three years. And it wasn't just in Hollywood that he met many famous people. He met people who were going to be famous when he was at Columbia, like Maury Riskind and Max Schuster, who later started Simon & Schuster. Yes, and also Oscar Hammerstein and Lorenz Hart of Rogers & Hart, mm-hmm. Rogers & Hammerstein. He was part of a group who loved theater, and they would gather at night at Hart's house and, and talk about what they wanted to do. And, it, you know, he, so he had these early friends in in theater and then later on when he came he went to germany for a couple of years uh, and wrote for various newspapers and when he came back to new york he was involved with the algonquin set dorothy parker george s kaufman who he worked for at the new york times in the theater section harold ross who started the new yorker and asked herman to be the first theater critic so yes he he knew people who we remember today as as founders of sort of the 20s. Now, you said he graduated in 1917. That's a very fateful year for America. It's when we joined World War I. Yes. He graduated, and his father insisted he go to graduate school. So he did for a semester, but meanwhile, he was not happy. So he dropped out and immediately got two jobs working for a newspaper and a magazine. And then he enlisted. 
and he went over to World War One. He got over to Europe just as the fighting was ending, but not so he saw no combat, but he saw the results of war and it and it affected him very deeply. And he was always extremely anti war. He was also very keen in discussing politics and reading political history. How do you think that affected his view of what American politics should be like? Well, he was. Herman had a deep interest in politics and history, and people always talked about how erudite he was in that area. When in the in the 1920s, he then watched Hitler rise to power. If that's what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. yes. And by 1933, he was rather unhappily working in Hollywood. He did not really respect movies, but that's what he did. And he took time off from his job to write a movie, Mad Dog of Europe. It had two parallel narratives. One was about a rising dictator named Adolf Mittler. He wasn't very disguised. (laughs) And the other uh, narrative were two families, a Jewish one and a Christian one in a little town called Gronau, which actually is the name of an actual German town. And he wove those two narratives together to show both the rise of this evil man and how it affected people, both Jews and, and Christians. And what was fascinating and so impressive to me was that he wrote this in 1933, and yet each milestone in Adolf Mittler's rise were the actual milestones that are still considered by historians the the points, to, the landmarks in Adolf Hitler's rise. So it was a very impressive reading of history. That he could see it almost immediately at first hand, not having to wait in hindsight yes. to look back and judge it. He, he knew it right. when it was happening. Exactly. He understood what was happening and wanted to alert the United States to this terrible threat so that something would be done. He really wasn't advocating war. And, they, and of course, they weren't at war. Even Europe wasn't at war in 1933. But he could not get the movie produced. There was a lot of resistance to offending the German market for one thing. Well, and if you can judge a man by his enemies, having the Third Reich ban your movies in particular is quite a high honor. In fact, it was only movies by Hermann Mankiewicz that they banned. So it was it was an honor. And in many, many years later, his son, Frank Mankiewicz, was on not one but two enemies lists of President Nixon. And he considered that a high honor. And he related it back to his father's experience. While Herman was working as a journalist and a theater critic, he also had a third job, and that was just exasperating his editors. <laughs> well, that's a good way of, of saying it. Herman had several downfalls. Alcohol was one. Gambling was very ruinous. And getting himself fired was the third. And this was not a good combination, either in New York or later in Hollywood. He was self-destructive. Now, he met a young woman, Sarah Aronson, and they got married. How did she deal with this man who was just hard to handle? I loved Sarah. I loved reading about her. I felt she was reduced to a punchline, and I'll tell you that story, which is Herman ran into someone in Hollywood at some point, and the the person said, how's Sarah? And Herman said, who? And the person said, Sarah, you know, your wife. And he said, oh, you mean poor Sarah. And that stuck for the rest of her life. I mean, I would be interviewing people and they talk about, well, poor Sarah, this important. And uh, wow, 
what a moniker to get for life. But she adored and admired him, which does not mean everything was okay. And she did leave him several times. She was also instrumental in getting him rehired. She would go and plead his case. And, and sometimes when they had no money coming in, they had a very nice house in Beverly Hills that they rented for a very nominal rent for various reasons that are too complicated to go into. But she would, if they had no money coming in because he was between studios, she would rent out the house and move them to a smaller apartment and they would live off the rent. So it was a very up and down life. How did he get involved with that Algonquin Roundtable set? He had worked with George S. Kaufman. He had also contributed little pieces to FPA's column, etc. So he was trying to be in journalistic circles even before he left for Germany. He came back from Germany in 1922 thinking that he was going to get a job with Kaufman at the New York Times theater section, but they didn't need anybody at that point. So they got him a job somewhere else. But he was, even though he was younger than many of them, he was very witty and they liked him and they admired him. So he sort of ran with Robert Benchley and Dorothy Parker and George S. Kaufman, et cetera. And several people thought he might be the funniest person in all of New York. Do you have any particular quips of Herman's that are favorites of yours? Oh, you mean the Voltaire of Central Park West, which is what (laughs) Ben Hecht called him. Yes. Yeah, he was very witty. (laughs) The full-time help of half-wits is better than the half-time help of full-wits. That's what he said to Harold Ross, saying that he had been helpful. As you mentioned, alcohol was a problem, and that seemed that was a major theme amongst many of the Algonquin Roundtable. Yes, prohibition was going on, and it really backfired on the intentions because it made drinking so glamorous. And many of those friends who were part of that set became alcoholics and died young. They sort of never seemed to have gotten over that sort of adolescent view of alcohol. It's tragic. You mentioned his ruinous gambling a little bit earlier. Some people nowadays might call him a degenerate gambler. (laughs) The person that just can't stay out of the game. What were the games of chance and skill that dominated his mind that he had to keep throwing his money at him? Well, he would bet on anything, first of all. Would play poker. He wasn't very good at it. And when he got to Hollywood, he was playing with people who were his superiors in the studios who had a lot more money. And so they could bet more. And they never seemed to mind taking his money. His son, Don, who became a screenwriter and also had a gambling problem for a long time, said that his father really didn't understand the concept of odds. He just thought any event was 50-50. So he was often in debt. And I saw some correspondence when I was doing research where he sent Lewis Milestone, the director, a check and said, I owe you some tremendous amount, like $8,000. I mean, a huge amount. I don't have it, but I do have a salary. So I'm going to send you 12 checks, you know, and we'll take it out of my salary. And Milestone wrote and said, you don't owe me anything. You owe the pot. You know, I, he just was sort of fuzzy on that, but always ready to bet. Good time guy, always ready to be in on the game. And so that led to his need of the lump sum. And how does the lump sum change his life? Right. So in the mid-20s, it's hard for people, especially young people who all want to seem to want to go and write for movies, direct movies, be in movies, be associated with movies somehow, to realize how in low regard movies were held in those days by intellectuals. The silliest play was still regarded as art. 
whereas theater, which came out of Nickelodeons, et cetera, was, was regarded as slumming for, for writers, certainly. And remember, this was, sound was, had not come in at that point. So these were silent movies with titles. Now, in fact, there were some very good movies being made, but a lot of them were, in fact, silly. But the money was very good. So at one point, Herman had a debt that was probably about $1,200 or $2,200. And people from Hollywood were saying, you know, you could make a lot of money out there. So he decided he would go out and write a screenplay or do whatever it was they wanted him to do. MGM wanted offered to hire him for a while make enough money to pay off the debt and then come back to New York and resume the life that he loved in New York. So he went out there and while he was working there, Harold Ross fired him from the New Yorker because he was always late with his copy. He didn't get along with people, various, all the reasons he was always getting fired. So he came back to New York furious and eventually decided he'd better go out and work in Hollywood for a while. But he assumed it was going to be a couple of years or maybe less, I'm not sure, and then come back to New York to his real life. But that pithiness he had with the Algonquin Roundtable seemed to serve him really well when he was writing those very brief, compact title cards that went in between the action and the silent movies. Yes, he was very epigrammatic and actually regarded, I mean, it was sort of what he did all day anyway. And in fact, title writers were very well paid because even though it seems like you're kind of writing a caption for a comic book, they could make or break the movies. And in fact, it was said you could film all these scenes and you could make it into a tragedy or a comedy, depending on what you wrote. I was doing some extra research and I saw that title card writing finally got an Academy Award in 1929, right before the jazz singer comes out. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think they they may have only given it one or two years, but it finally got to be respected by the Academy and then came talkies. Well, I, I think it was, I mean, the Academy was kind of created to head off unionizing anyway. So it was it was sort of, I think, to keep the laborers busy and satisfied for a while. And then it grew and grew and grew and became very prestigious. Herman's wittiness and charm also landed him invites up to San Simeon, where William Randolph Hearst had his castle. And that unknowingly became research for him that would serve him well later on in life. Yes, he was always interested in Hearst. Hearst was a fascinating character for you didn't have to be in the newspaper business to be fascinated by him, but because Herman was deep in the newspaper business, he knew a lot about him. And it was not only his newspapers and his power, but his collecting. He was always running around Europe and, and had agents all over Europe buying him all kinds of things. So it was quite fantastic going to San Simeon where they had wild animals. He had a zoo. There were They would have these picnics that were very elaborate. In fact, they'd have people on horseback who really didn't want to be on horseback. Hearst called it his ranch, and he liked it. It was sort of Marie Antoinette-ish, right? It was rustic and glamp glamping, I guess they call it now. And so, because Herman was very interested in politics and history, Hearst liked having him around and, and would put him next to him at the table and when he'd have senators and heads of state and everything. So it was very interesting for Herman. With his gambling and his drinking and his difficulty in being an employee, do you think these were just all attempts at self-sabotage? Yes, because, I mean, originally I thought Herman was a quintessential Hollywood screenwriter who went out there 
to make money and hated himself for prostituting his talents and drank himself to death. It's sort of a straight line. He was drinking and gambling in New York where he loved what he was doing. So I think he had demons and it had to do with his father. That's overly reductive. But but the point is when you're doing a biography and you're reading about decisions that people make, you want to often, at least I want to reach back and go, don't do it. You know, please stop doing this. You're sabotaging yourself. But yes, he was a self-sabotager. And he did go into analysis at one point and tried to change. And he would have periods where he was functional, where he was not drinking, and then he'd slip back. When the movies turn from silent to talking pictures, dialogue becomes very important for movies. And there are a few Hollywood screenwriters that had the ear for dialogue that Herman had. Yes. What happened was first he decided that Paramount, which is where he started, should hire his friend Ben Hecht. He wanted friends out there. So he got Ben Hecht out, and Ben Hecht did such a good job that B.P. Schulberg, Herman's boss and Hecht's boss, said, go back and find me more like him. So he came back to New York, and people called it the Herman Mankiewicz Fresh Air Fund for Writers. <laughs> and he got various newspaper writers and journalists to go out there and probably scoop up a lump sum. I don't think they all that many of them didn't assume this was going to be their life either. But people like Nunnally Johnson became extraordinary screenwriters. Johnson's a good example because they became best friends. But a lot of people feel that that wisecracking tone of the 1930s movies owed a lot to these former newspaper men because that's what they were like. The front page, Charles McCarthy, you know, Ben Hecht, et cetera. Probably why we had so many newspaper movies back then as well. Yes. Yes, they loved those. Despite all the success he was earning in Hollywood, he always yearned to go back and conquer legitimate theater. Yes, in fact, when he went to Hollywood, he imagined he would be bi-coastal because at that point in 1927, he was working on a play with Kaufman and one with Mark Connolly, who had been George Kaufman's partner in very, some very successful plays. And both of those plays were flops. Despite his collaborators' frequent success, the ones Herman worked on with him with them were not successful. And later on, he tried to do it again. His plays never succeeded. Did you read any of the plays? Did you have an idea of why they might not have grabbed on to the public's attention? Yes. And the one was the good fellow, the good fellow. They were making fun of lodges. It did open on Broadway, and it closed quite quickly. And And I think it was a combination of the lead actor, who Herman didn't think was very strong, but he was stuck out in L.A. and, and so had no power over casting. But also, New York audiences weren't particularly interested in lodges, which they thought provided a lot of low-hanging fruit. And lodge members who came were offended, so it was sort of nothing for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've learned over the years that even if you're going to make fun of something, you kind of have to have a bit of affection for it in the first place. Yes. Well, he did have affection for his characters, I felt, but this was uh, not a good one. And I also think that he and Kaufman weren't a particularly felicitous combination. Kaufman did better with people like Edna Ferber, who was better with characters. So... And Kaufman did work with him again much later in life, but it also didn't work. And they, worked, they wrote something called Sleeper Jump, 
that they completed and then they just decided it was too thin and they never tried to produce it. You think perhaps they got caught in games of one-upsmanship and who could have the better crack? No, I think it was Herman being lazy. I mean, Kaufman was very disciplined and he was very fond of Herman and he wanted to work with him again, but Herman just didn't come through. I think maybe they shared the same gaps too. Herman goes on to work on two of the biggest films in Hollywood history with The Wizard of Oz and with Citizen Kane, but I think we should let the readers experience that for themselves. Before we get into Joseph L. Mankiewicz's life, I don't think we should ignore their sister, Erna. How did she fit into the birth order, and what was her life like in the family and then later on? Erna was about four years younger than Herman, so that was their family, a boy and a girl it seemed complete. And Erna was very smart, and later on, when Herman had brought Joe out to Hollywood, he decided he should bring Erna out to Hollywood, too. But she wasn't funny like they were, and she just could not succeed as a screenwriter. So Erna went back to New York and became a teacher. So she was the only one to fulfill their father's dreams of having his children be educators. And ended up living in Europe in her later life, right? She did. She was widowed fairly young, which was very sad because evidently her husband was a wonderful guy. So then she went over, I think, partly to save money, that it was just cheaper to live in Europe. And she lived there. She was a very good bridge player, evidently. And I have heard recordings of her interviews that she gave to an earlier biographer in the 70s, in the earlier 70s. And I became very fond of Verna, too. That was one of the aspects that fascinated me about the book, especially we'll talk about Joseph here, but there'll be like several times Joseph remembering or talking about something that happened in his past. And over the years, his recollections differ over there. So how did you kind of ascertain what the truth might be in all of those different versions? That's a biographer's challenge. And when there are many different versions, I try to get as close to the contemporaneous accounts as I can. Like Joe could start to exaggerate things. But if you go back to newspaper clips or school records or things like that, I I can get closer to what really happened. Much has been written about the brothers over the years. Why did you feel the need and the interest to to get in there and, and write more about these fascinating men? Well, I started with Herman. Herman interested me, and I thought that would be a great way to write about Hollywood and the studio system, and by the way, Citizen Kane, etc. And this very complicated man who went out to Hollywood and drank himself to death. And meanwhile, we can write about the Algonquins, etc. And in starting to research Herman, I read a biography of Joe. They each had a biography that came out in 1978. And I thought, hmm, this is really interesting. He came out of the same family. He did many of the same things, but there was quite a different result. Herman had one wife, Joe had three wives and many mistresses, et cetera, et cetera. Joe did not drink himself to death, but he had a very sad last 20 years. So it was interesting, and I thought the whole of the two would be more interesting than the sum of the parts. Now, as we mentioned last week, Joseph was born almost 12 years after Herman, so that probably allowed them to have a bit more affection toward each other and less of a sense of competition when they were inside the family home. Yes, it was really interesting because Joe, not surprisingly, adored and worshipped Herman. Their father, by this time, Pop was a very harsh father to Herman. He was a pretty absent father to Joe. 
He was distracted. He loved his work. He seemed to put more into his relationships with his students than he did with his family. So Joe, he didn't use the the phrase benign neglect, but he would say, you know, I didn't get yelled at like my father did. But he had this other father figure who he just adored. And Herman was leading what would seem to many people to be a very glamorous life, hobnobbing with the Algonquins and writing about the Marx Brothers. And at one point when Joe was in school, he interviewed W.C. Fields. Herman set up an interview and then W.C. Fields wrote Joe a thank you note. So it was a god for many years. So Joe definitely wanted to follow into Herman's footsteps. He also graduated from Columbia and he had a very successful run there because First of all, he got to go for four years. I think the family was not in such financial distress. And he was in a fraternity. Joe was more athletic. He was very charming. So he had a good four years at Columbia. He was, but he was also very young. He graduated in 1928, which meant he was about 19. So he went to Europe because the father wanted him, just as he had with Herman, to go to grad school and become a PhD and an educator. And he wrote to Herman, I don't want that continental polish. I want to come out and I'm ready to for life. And he would write Herman over the years these letters that were very witty. And, and you could just see he just wanted to be paid attention to and, and to have Herman think he was bright, which he was. He was very witty. So Herman brought Joe out in early 1929 when Joe turned 20 in February. So he wasn't even 20 when he went out there, but he was a college graduate and a very bright one. So he went to Hollywood with stars in his eyes, unlike Herman. And he did not have the same kind of political bent that Herman had either. No, he was not political. Herman was the history and politics kind of person. Joe loved theater. And he also, like Herman, always dreamed of writing plays. In fact, my original title for the book was When Life Louses Up the Script which was what Joe used to say. You know, we make all these plans and then life has a way of lousing up the script. But my publisher said, you don't have enough searchable words in that title. So <laughs> so we have brothers and Mankiewicz and Hollywood and classics. And, you know, and then I tried to use the rest of the words in the title to transmit that they had aspirations and disappointments. That's an aspect of titling a book I've really never thought of. Yeah, I hadn't either. Although I'm not good with titles, I'd never thought up a title that I liked, and I was so excited this time, but I like the title it has now. It's descriptive. What kind of movies was Joseph first working on when he got out to Hollywood? Now it's early 1929, so sound has come in. But because the theaters, they weren't all yet equipped for sound, so the studios were still turning out silent versions of sound movies, or you could say sound versions of silent movies. I don't know. So Joe was writing titles as Herman had started. By then, Herman had moved on to dialogue. It was all sort of bifurcated in the beginning because there were people used to writing, okay, now she crosses to the other side of the room and looks like she's crying, and then they intersperse a title. Oh, I'm so upset, you know, that kind of thing. So he did titles, and he was so ambitious. He he set a record. At the, I think he did nine in eight weeks or something like that. So he was this bright young go-getter. Anytime memos came out, we're looking for this, we're looking for that, he'd send in tons of suggestions. He was really an eager beaver. And it didn't really hurt him too much to be that way. Sometimes it can come off as desperate, but being from a very witty family, he made the most of his ambition. 
Right. And he was so young and, you know, sort of endearing. I mean, he, he told the story that one time he was at a movie with Mary Bryan, who was a, one of their stars, and he got called out because they were filming. They were shooting at night because the studio had had a fire, so they didn't have sound stages, and now it's sound. So they would shoot at night because the city would be the quietest. They were doing it outside. And he had written this scene for a couple of comedians, and they said, and then they'll do their thing. And he said, you know, what? So what? What was it? He thought that they all made that up. And no, you have to write dialogue, even if it's silly dialogue. So that's, he got started on that, too. He was promoted into producing, but that was not like it is today at all. Well, actually, it was, but it wasn't what he wanted to do. What happened was that he really did a good job. And Herman went to Metro Golden Mayor. He was Herman was pushed out of Paramount. I guess Joe sort of had fights with Paramount too, but now we're in the Depression. So Paramount was floundering too. And in 1934, Joe went to Metro Golden Mayor and he had a big success with Manhattan Melodrama, which was Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, and William Powell. It's good to be smart, but it's also good to be lucky because <laughs> not only was it a big box office and critical hit, but it's the movie that John Dillinger was leaving, which he had gone to several times because he loved the movie when he was shot by the FBI. And so Public Enemy Number 1 was shot after leaving this movie that Joe had written. So that was a big boost. And then he wrote a couple of other movies that did really well. What happens is these studios were like factories. They were set up like factories, and the writers did not own their words. The studio owned the words, and they had no power over what would be done with the screenplay that they might have labored over. So Joe wanted to direct. He wanted to be able to direct the movies that he wrote so that he could see it fulfilled on screen as he had envisioned it. And he went to Louis B. Mayer and said, could I direct the movies that I have written? And directors and producers at, M at Metro Golden Mayor were the top people, and they could change dialogue, they could change directors. Directors sort of came and went. Producers really were the, the top people there. He said, I'd like to direct, and Louis B. Mayer said, you need to learn to crawl before you can walk. I'm going to make you a producer. And that was a real blow to Joe, because both he and Herman always thought of, of themselves as writers. And so now, as a producer, he was not supposed to write. He was supposed to oversee movies. It was not the creative kind of work that he wanted to be doing. But it was more prestigious within the studio. So he was miserable on many respects, although he was making a lot of money. And he was very young. In 1934, he was 25. So in 1936 or 37, he was just still in his 20s when he was promoted to this level. He called those his black years when he was a producer, but he was a good producer. And one of his ex-bosses, who's been head of the writers, called Joe a pencil-picking-up producer. Because he had the power as a producer, even if he wasn't rewriting, and he did do some rewriting, but he could force the writers to keep rewriting and bring in other writers to get it the way he wanted it. But then he couldn't get credit for it because producers had been helping themselves to on-screen credits for so much time that they were then banned from getting credit unless they'd written the whole movie. So it was a very unhappy period in his life, and he said he hated being a producer, but he was actually pretty good at it. And among the movies he produced were The Philadelphia Story and Woman of the Year, in which he introduced Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. 
and the Philadelphia story is my all-time favorite movie. So I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry it's so difficult for him, but I, I, I love the result. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And Joe takes credit for the opening scene when Cary Grant pushes Catherine Hepburn and the freeze frames at the end. He says those were his two ideas. Also, when he was producing, he had to work with the uh, German director Fritz Long, and that was not a director you'd want to emulate later in his career. No, he was very temperamental, and that, I mean that was his very first movie for MGM, I think, as a producer, Fury. And Europeans had a different, more hierarchical way of dealing with production than Americans did, and Fritz Long was a dictator and kept everyone working all day without even giving them time for meals and would take take after take after take because he thought it was the way he directed was to break down the actors. So in Fury, it included Spencer Tracy and other people in the in the cast and I guess in the crew also said, we're dying out here. We really need to stop for lunch. So Spencer Tracy was their sort of appointed spokesperson person and he said Mr. Long could we stop for lunch and Fritz Long said something like we'll stop when I'm ready which he never did because he just had one pill for lunch or something like that so Spencer Tracy wiped his you know hand across his face messing up his makeup and saying lunchtime and so they got lunch after that but in the meantime the crew had been so upset at one point Joe was called in the middle of the night because he heard that they were going to drop a lamp on Long and sort of do it in a way that no one would be held culpable. <laughs> Gracious. Yes. They're talking about fragging their director. Right. Exactly. Friendly fire, right? <laughs> <laughs> so how did Joseph eventually break into directing? Well, it really came out of his love life. Joseph was married most of his adult life to one of his three wives, and he was always having affairs as well. And one of the affairs he had was with Judy Garland. One of the things Joe liked to do with the women that he was involved in is get them psychiatric help if he thought they needed it. And Judy Garland was certainly a candidate. She had this horrible stage mother, and the studio really abused her and and made her feel horrible about herself. And so he was having an affair, and Mayer called him in and said, you know, you've got to stop, and this is terrible, and blah, blah, blah. And And basically, Joe reacted... To Mr. Mayor, the studio isn't big enough for both of us. One of us has to go. <laughs> <laughs> one was Mayor and one was Joe. We can imagine who went. And so he had to leave Metro-Golden-Mayor, and he ended up at 20th Century Fox. And because it was a lesser studio, he insisted on two things. He wanted a raise, and he wanted the ability to write, direct, and produce at will with his pictures. And they gave him that. So that's when he started having the opportunity to direct, although he he had to teach himself to direct. You can't just exactly jump in and know what to do. So he did have some films that he considered his apprenticeship while he learned to direct. I was fascinated in that section with Judy Garland that people tried to make her feel unattractive. And I just watched Easter Parade a couple of weeks ago, and she was so lovely. Yes. Well, I don't think they didn't set out to be mean, but she was in, you know, if you're a little girl or a young girl going to school with Elizabeth Taylor and Lana Turner, it's hard because she was more talented than Drop Dead Gorgeous and certainly more talented than either of them, I would certainly argue. 
and they would make fun of her, and her mother was very harsh. Oh, it's just awful to read about. I mean, there are many biographies, and I've read most of them, I think, and it's each one is painful. Joseph becomes established as a director and has one of the best two-year runs a director could ever have in the history of Hollywood, winning back-to-back Oscars for screenwriter and direction for 1950, A Letter to Three Wives, and then 51, All About Eve. Right. They were, it was actually, that's when the Academy Awards were Were given. Yeah. Right. They were 1949 and 1950 films, but that record has never been equaled to win writer and director back to back like that. When he saw the property that was at that originally a letter to five wives, he said, I knew I had looked upon the promised land. (laughs) (laughs) It was a great property. I uh, watched the movie yesterday to kind of get myself into the feel of things. And in the book, you talk about his admiration of intelligent women that he had affairs with and that he wanted to create realistic depth and intelligent women characters in the movies. But in that movie, I could also see there were some very kind of male patronizing attitudes that came across there, too. So there's when I was watching the same, there was this weird tension between those two ideas. Well, it's interesting because he wrote wonderful roles for women, but it's true. In A Letter to Three Wives, at least two of the men, the uh, the Kirk Douglas character and the Paul Douglas character, are wonderful male roles, which you don't see in some of his other movies. The third one is not very interesting, but I think it was partly a function of the actor who, who played that, the third husband. Kirk Douglas was kind of Joe's mouthpiece. He played a teacher, so he got to say all these things that Joe and his father had said about how teachers don't get no respect, basically. I mean, they're wonderful speeches. Paul Douglas was making his movie debut, and he had a wonderful role, Porter Hollingsway, in A Letter to Three Wives, and he did a great job. But Anne Southern and Jean Crane, who Joe did not particularly like as an actress, but I think she does a lovely job, and Linda Darnell have wonderful roles, not to mention Thelma Ritter, which Joe wrote her part as the maid for for Thelma Ritter. There was some pretty saucy dialogue about the way advertising penetrates the mind, and and, uh, I was going, how did that get past the haze? When I read the censor documents, what they object to, You just have to laugh at some of their objections. They're just ridiculous. He was very proud of what he could slip through. And what he did was basically put some low-hanging fruit in there and then hope to get the other things through. I can tell you that dialogue if you want. I happen to have it in front of me. Okay, go ahead. One of the most interesting things about this movie is he does create a married woman with children. In fact, she has twins, the wife of Kirk Douglas. This is the Ann Southern character who is trying to juggle a career and her home life. And he's basically sympathetic to it. And that's unusual for that period. And she's the major breadwinner for the family, too. Yes, and that gives him the opportunity to have Kirk Douglas talk about how ill-paid teachers are and how important it is to society and, and that it's really quite terrible. But he also does all these riffs about advertising. So the Ann Southern character writes for radio. The scene for that marriage is having her boss, Mrs. Manley, and Mrs. Manley's sort of milk toast husband, Mr. Manley, for dinner. And Mrs. Manley is trying to convince Porter, the other character who has a chain of stores, that he should use radio advertising. And he, and he says, Sadie, the maid who's Selma Ritter, Mrs. Manley says, Sadie may not realize it, but whether or not she thinks she's listening, 
she's being penetrated. And then George, the the Kirk Douglas teacher character, says, it's a good thing she didn't hear you say that. And Mrs. Manley says, after penetration comes saturation. And when she's saturated, she'll find herself recommending products to her employers. And then Laura May, who's, who's Porter's wife, goes, not Sadie. I've seen her when she was saturated to the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's great dialogue. In making these strong women in films, he in his personal life with his at least first couple of wives, he was not as kind as he was to his characters. No, it's interesting because I don't think Herman particularly had sexual affairs, but he would have these friendships. But he was sort he and Sarah and he and the women he liked were sort of like the Spencer Tracy Catherine Hepburn sparring kind of relationships. Joe liked Pygmalion-like relationships. He got started with Linda Darnell on, in, during this movie. So Linda Darnell was about 24, although she'd been working in the movies for about 10 years. And Joe, by 1949, is 40. And Linda Darnell had barely finished high school, and Joe was brilliant and very intellectual. And so he would like to mold them and tell them they needed psychiatric help and everything. And this was true with Judy Garland. It was true with... Joan Crawford, sort of. I mean, she was older than he. That didn't last that long anyway. But in his movies, he created these women who wanted more. That's true with The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, too. You know, this was kind of a Victorian or turn-of-the-century woman who became a writer. He gave them abilities and opportunities and recognized that women wanted more. He was always having affairs, and he was a, not a nice husband to his wife in that way. He was. It was very painful for her. After his first marriage ended, he gave up custody of his son to be adopted by his new stepfather. Did that affect his psyche in any visible way over the years? Well, that was interesting because there was so much correspondence for me to use. So it was very intimate finding out about that. It was sort of a starter marriage. They were married and then divorced within three years, but they'd had a child, Eric, and his wife went back to New York and with Eric. She was from New York. And within a few years, married a lovely man named Eugene Raynal, who was a publisher. And they had a child. And then at some point, when by the, this time now, Joe and his second wife, Rosa Stradner, an Austrian actress, had two children. And when he had the second son, he approached his first wife about altering their child support payments. And at that point, she said, well, you know, Eric's very confused because he has a different last name than everyone, so we would like to adopt him. And Joe put up a fight for a while, but he really said, I think he loves me more than I love him. He was pretty distant in that way, and, and but I would not want him to think that I had deserted him. So he eventually he let it go through. And that was kind of that. He, he saw him a little bit over the years. But much later, Eric's stepmother engineered Joe and Eric getting together. And in later life, and especially during Joe's third marriage, it was a very warm and loving relationship. So it sort of came out nicely in the end. And he had a nice stepfather in the, in the interim. <laughs> Eric did. Where Herman expressed his emotions almost too freely, Joseph was much more reserved in his manner, and it seemed to cause difficulty in his life because he was so kind of self-contained. But they were both charming and fun to be with and very funny. 
but Joe was controlled, it's true. And while he did have warm friendships, it was not the same. People wanted to take care of Herman. They called him Mankey. And in fact, I think some called his father Mankey too, Pop. But I don't think anyone ever would have called Joe Mankey. You know, he was Joe. Or Mr. Mankiewicz, which he would insist on sometimes. Joe did have a problem with gambling for a while, and he got himself in hand. I mean, he had, as Herman said, I've been a good, bad example for him. So as Joseph's fortunes were rising and Herman's were falling, how did their relationship fare with that dynamic? Well, it's really interesting because when Joe's fortunes were rising, that was when he was a producer, and he was really miserable. But Herman and Sarah really didn't know that. And Herman was kind of deteriorating, but still very well regarded. I mean, Herman was just kind of a, a presence, even though he kept getting fired, etc. And the issue of sibling rivalry is really interesting because Joe felt it much more than Herman. I'm a first child, and I and when I've in adult life, I've seen little babies and little kids that are the first, and to me, their experience is like they are the sun and all these people around them are like the planets all facing them at all times. Oh, you're wonderful. Oh, you do this. So I think Herman kind of went through life thinking about Herman and Joe went through life thinking about Herman and wanting to achieve what Herman did and, and best him. And he did, but it was never quite enough to feel seen by pop. I think their father died in 1941, just a few days before Pearl Harbor he lived on in both their psyches for the rest of their lives. In dealing with someone like Herman over the years, did it give him a special way to deal with actors, especially ones that could be a problem like Rex Harrison? Gosh, I never thought of a, a parallel. No, because what Joe had to do with Herman was bail him out all the time. And I even feel part of Herman's spiraling down was punishing Joe for his success, which is a self-limiting proposition, but still. With Rex, Joe compared Rex Harrison to a Stradivarius. He was a master of high comedy. He was an exquisite actor. He was a horrible human being, but not in the same ways that, that Herman was. Rex Harrison was just cruel and, and horrible in, in many ways. But put him on stage or in front of a camera and he can be exquisite. And Joe wrote very complicated dialogue and he could give it what it needed. You know, he could do it justice. So he loved having Rex Harrison in his movies. Working with Rex Harrison could be a different proposition. He directed him in four movies. And when it came years later for Sleuth, they were having trouble, a little trouble casting. And for about two seconds, he thought about Rex Harrison, and both his wife and his agent had made him promise he would never work with Harrison again. <laughs> <laughs> as the studio system was coming to a close and Joseph sets out as uh, independent production, how did that change his feeling about the craft and how he approached it? Well, it's interesting because he was always denigrating movies and, and studio movies and saying, you know, if it weren't such a business we could craft beautiful movies, but he was complaining all the way to the bank because the reason he could live like a king was because it was a business. And so he continued to badmouth studio products, both while he was there, biting the hand that fed him very well, and after he left. It was only years later, after the studio system had really cratered, he was 
sort of in the pasture from the 70s on that he would look back and say, we really made some good movies. And, you know, if I could make movies with all these bad words, then, you know, everyone would be running to me and so forth. So it was bad while he was in it. And then it looked really good in retrospect. Much as we did with Herman, we left The Citizen Kane and Wizard of Oz for the readers to discover through themselves. People absolutely have to read this book to learn about the three hardest films that Joseph ever worked on, which was known as Cleopatra. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. The three longest pictures I ever made. Oh, that's just a crazy, crazy story. Joseph's and Herman's children and grandchildren have gone on to make their mark in the American culture and film and in news and in politics as well. It's an amazing tree this family's had. Yes, I had actually interviewed Frank for my biography of Gloria Steinem. Frank Mankiewicz, who was Herman's younger son, was the only Mankiewicz I had ever talked to when I got started on this book. He was a valedictorian, probably at high school, definitely at college, which is amazing. And he was a journalist and a lawyer and later left the law and went to the Peace Corps, where he headed Latin American, the Peace Corps in Latin America, later NPR. He was George McGovern's campaign manager, and he was Robert Kennedy's press secretary and announced his death to the world. So I said to him at one point, he, I had a lot of interviews with Frank, who did not die till 2014. I think Herman would have loved your career because he also wrote books. He was a political pundit. He loved politics. And both Josh and Ben clearly loved politics and grew up in a very political family. Yeah, Ben has found a way to do movies and politics. Yeah, he has. And then the the older son, Don, Herman's older son, actually wrote prize-winning novels. He wrote for TV. He wrote for movies. And his son, John, and his daughter, Jane, both also wrote for The New Yorker. They were third-generation New Yorker writers. And John is a screenwriter today and producer. So it, that is a three generations of, of screenwriting. And, and it happened on it, two generations on Joe's side because Joe ended up eventually with his three wives. He had the son, Eric, went into invest, went into banking, international banking. But Chris and Tom, his, his sons with his middle wife, Rosa, were both in the movie business. And Tom was a very successful screenwriter, screen doctor, and eventually even director. He directed and wrote Dragnet, the one with Tom Hanks, which is, <laughs> I think it's very funny. It was a great silly movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Joe eventually had a daughter. I mean, Joe really loved women. and every, He was interested in them. And with his third wife, Rosemary, who's still alive, he and Rosemary had Alex. And Alex was a wonderful source for this book. And she's an artist, so she does graphic cartoons sometimes. So basically, as she says, she's making a movie all by herself. She's doing the visual, she's doing the concept, she's doing the words. She lives in Australia. You mentioned that you'd written a biography on Gloria Steinem, and she was very influential on the American culture as well. It's obvious to see how they're different, but is there any similarities between Steinem and the Mankiewicz brothers that would give a common theme that would allow them to be so influential? Well, I mean, people have said, you went from, my first book was about the toy industry. I had worked for Fortune magazine and I had done business journalism. So what do the, what does the toy industry have to do with Gloria Steinem that has to do with the Mankiewicz's? And I think it's, it's creativity that interests me. Gloria Steinem, I mean, I lived through the women's movement. It basically gave me my career because it, 
I needed all that theory to understand what was going on. So she was always a hero to me. So in that way, she also had a very troubled family background, and it influenced her in many ways. And so, I, I mean, one, you can never exactly leave that behind. The person is, you know, the child's the father of the man or the woman in this case. So I think it's more creativity than influence that attracted me. And also, Gloria is so complicated. And I thought after I did that book, I am never going to find a subject as complicated as Gloria Steinem. And I found two. <laughs> <laughs> the book, The Brothers Mankiewicz, was published last year on the University of Mississippi Press, but just recently was put out as an audiobook through Random House. That seems like a, a pretty unusual situation there. I know. I, I'm thrilled that they did it. And my husband only listens to books, so it's very cool because I feel like it's going to reach a different audience. I think partly they were prompted by the fact that there's going to be a movie about Herman Mankiewicz starring Gary Oldman, which is directed by David Fincher. And the original screenplay was by his father. And I think Penguin Random House felt there would be an upsurge of interest in Herman once the movie came out. And it's supposed to be about Herman and Orson Welles writing Citizen Kane. So it'll be a biopic. I mean, there'll be fiction in it, I'm sure. I haven't seen the script, but there's a lot of controversy about who wrote Citizen Kane, so it should excite a lot of interest in that way. It hasn't even been finished, I don't think, and people are arguing already. So that I think that's good for business for me. So is there a, a trio of brothers or sisters out there that might catch your interest next to up the stakes from two to three? Yes, I think there might be, but I can't tell you yet. Okay. I think you're too young to die, and I'd have to shoot you. <laughs> well, Sydney, I want to thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate your work and talent in showing us these two very complicated men's lives. Well, thank you for reading the book and for your enthusiasm. I loved writing it, and I love talking about it, and it's fun to be interviewed by somebody with your knowledge and enthusiasm. So thank you. Sidney Ladenson Stern is the author of The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics, which is published by the University of Mississippi Press and was recently released in audiobook format by Random House Audio. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.